Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah 62 and Ephesians 5. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as, burnt, as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Paul Major, pastoral. Whoa, there I am. Uh, Paul Major. I'm the pastoral assistant and uh, director of college ministries here at Christ Central. Uh, it is my pleasure to uh, bring the word to you this morning. We continue in our sermon series, "Explicit Lyrics of the Faith," wherein we look at some of those things that make the Christian faith offensive to the outside world. We do not do this uh, to offend the world for the sake of offending, nor to praise ourselves for being right. What we hope to accomplish is that uh, believer and unbeliever alike, the skeptic and the convinced, can hear, maybe for the first time, what the Bible actually has to say for itself. And so... If you were here last week, I pick up basically where Pastor Howard left off. In his sermon on sacraments, Pastor Howard spent considerable time uh, arguing that since the outward expressions of inward truths that are the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are shared by all those who profess to be Christians, then we need to, I'm paraphrasing here, Stop focusing on the lines we've drawn in the sand and see that we're all at the same beach. So for today's sermon, I take a different tack, but come ultimately to the same destination, the same conclusion, which is not the conclusion of Christ Central Church alone, but 
that of the Bible. So I hope to emphasize two things. First, I want to stress the importance of membership in a local church community. Along with an appreciation for the relationship between uh, that particular church and its denomination, or as I grew up hearing it called, its flavor. Christ Central's particular flavor is Presbyterian. We are a congregation of the PCA. And there are many of you who love Christ Central, but do not love the PCA. But as a member of Christ Central, you you would at least need to be aware that Christ Central is a PCA church and therefore follows the PCA's rules most of the time. Secondly, I want to emphasize an appreciation and a brotherly love for all those other flavors. Because Jesus loves all those other flavors. And so should we. And if for some reason you just can't jive with Christ Central or the PCA, we don't want you to go renegade. Find a flavor you like and join it. We'll even help you. But more specifically, I want to focus on the common attitude that is both out there and in here. This common attitude uh, where people say things like, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. It's all about me and Jesus. Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is my homeboy. I don't have to go to church to praise Jesus. Which is really the same thing as saying, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. Look at all the atrocities that have been done in the name of Christ. I can worship a God of my own understanding, so I don't need to believe in organized religion. Touche. But Jesus believes in organized religion. Jesus believes in church. Jesus loves the church. So much so, our Ephesians texts tell us he gave himself up for her. But instead of making this a lecture where I attempt to dismantle all the bad views, I'm going to let the Bible speak for itself. The Bible uses a number of metaphors to describe the church. It's the body of Christ, the family of God, the house, the temple of God. Uh, The church is a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But the most descriptive illustration of the church is as the bride of Christ. The church is Christ's wife, his beloved, his boo-thang. Therefore, we need the church because Christ loves the church. And those who are outside of the church are likely also outside of that divine husband and wife relationship. To be clear, the capital C church, like I'm on Sesame Street, I'm holding the big C. The capital C church is Christ's bride. But 
The capital C church is made up of lowercase c churches. Therefore, membership in a lowercase c church is important. I'm not saying that you can't get into heaven without your membership card, nor am I saying that church membership somehow trumps belief. What I am saying is that membership in a lowercase c church is an outward expression of an inward reality that you believe that you're part of the capital C church. Church membership is not a sacrament, but it is sacramental. And through it, you receive the sacraments. Saving faith should produce a desire to be a part, an active and visible part of a community. So the Bible tells us that Christ is the bride of, that the church is the bride of Christ. And therefore, Jesus is the husband of the church. So today we look at two passages asking, what kind of husband is Jesus? By better understanding this, we can see clearer how Jesus loves his church and why we should love his church too. Isaiah 62 and Ephesians 5 show us just what kind of husband Jesus is. Jesus is a loyal husband. Jesus is a particular husband. And Jesus is a proud husband. So by looking at his loyalty to, his particularity about, and his pride in his bride, we should see ourselves. Jesus' love for each of us individually is a reflection of his love for his bride universally. Ephesians 5.25 reads, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then in verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The Apostle Paul here is giving impossible marriage advice, which is interesting coming from a guy who was a lifelong bachelor. As a husband, I constantly fall short of this goal. In fact, it's the one thing that I'm really good at. The bar is just set too high. But fortunately, there's grace. And even more fortunately, I'm not preaching on how to have a perfect marriage. The bar is set so high because it's set by the only one who could actually accomplish these things. Jesus is the most loyal and sacrificial husband. He loved his bride so much that he gave himself up for her. He died so that she could live. His love for his bride is described as nourishing and cherishing. It's like Gollum in the ring, except not creepy. Jesus' love for the church is a loyal and obsessive love. A faithful love. 
So in our Ephesians passage, Paul samples the beat from Genesis when God makes Eve out of Adam's rib, saying that the two will become one flesh. But Paul remixes it, or, or better, restores it to its original, eternal context. Just as a husband and wife become one flesh, Jesus and his church are one flesh. And this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. But how far does this loyalty go? If Christ is one flesh with his church, then he can't be one flesh with anyone else. If Jesus nourishes and cherishes his bride, loving her enough to fight for her and die for her, then, he, then we can't possibly imagine Jesus running around on her. Jesus is loyal and faithful, the husband of one wife. Therefore, the capital C church is Jesus' one and only bride. No one else is loved like her. No one else receives the blessings that he gives only to her. No one else is cherished and nourished like she is. Therefore, if we think that we don't need the church, then we want to be Jesus' mistress. And Jesus don't play that game. Jesus only has eyes for his church. Yes, Jesus loves the whole world. But the church is his bride. But before we leave patting ourselves on the back, because we made the cut, we need to remember that the bride of Christ is the capital C church. That means every person who ever has or ever will believe in the saving grace that only comes through Christ. No matter how incorrect their theology or their politics, no matter how inconsistent their views or their lives, no matter how different from you they are, if Jesus has loved them with his perfect husbandly love and he has saved them with his sacrificial death and his miraculous resurrection, then they too are a part of his bride. And you are connected to them. The church is the bride of Christ, not just a bunch of unconnected individuals. Georges Seurat uh, was a French artist in the 1800s who developed a style of painting called pointillism. Instead of using broad strokes and lines, he used thousands of different colored dots to create incredible pieces of art. Up close, all you can see are dots, just dots. But when you stand back, you see broad landscapes and realistic figures and depth and perspective. What is just a bunch of dots on a flat canvas becomes a person or a river or the shadow of a tree in the distance. Seurat was able to turn dots into masterpieces. Each local church each individual is a dot in a masterpiece of color and depth. If we focus on our dots, on our colors, on our area of the painting, we miss the beauty of what Christ has called his church, his bride. 
Therefore, if we claim to be part of his body, sorry, if you claim to be part of his body, if you claim to be in the group known as his bride, then you are a member of his church and a part of an organized religion. No matter what your reasons, no matter how strong your aversion, if you claim to belong to Christ, then you must belong to the capital C church. Because Christ doesn't two-time his bride, we can't be satisfied with just me and Jesus type religion. I'm not terribly athletic. That's not funny. That's not. That's the setup, not the punchline. Uh, I'm not terribly athletic. I'm like a town car. I was designed for comfort and not for speed. There we go. Now we come in. Uh, but the one sport that I've always loved to play is baseball. But growing up, I lived in a neighborhood where there weren't any kids my age. So in order to scratch that baseball itch, I would go out in my backyard with my bat and my baseball, and I would lob the ball up in the air and swing at it. When I hit the ball, I had to put the bat down and run and find it. Right, But th this still certainly had its advantages. I was all-time batter. But it also had its disadvantages. I was all-time gopher. I had to stop batting and go for the ball wherever it ended up. While I got good at hitting balls that just sort of fell in front of me, I never actually gained the skills to hit a ball that was pitched to me. But the greatest disadvantage was that I was all alone. I had no teammates. I had no opponents. I had no coaches. No one cheering me on. No one dumping Gatorade on me and carrying me off the field on their shoulders. I had no one to share the fun with. And no one to help me get better. Being spiritual, but not religious... It's like playing baseball by yourself. It can be fun and personal and uplifting, but it doesn't reflect how the game is actually played. In order to play the game, you have to be part of a team. You have to be part of a community. There have to be rules. There has to be relationships. Being spiritual but not religious, having the just me and Jesus mentality is a flat, two-dimensional representation of a diverse and textured three-dimensional reality. To play baseball, you need to be on a team. To play Christianity, you need to be in a church. But what makes this whole thing tricky is that the capital C church, Jesus' bride, can be hard to define. Until we get to heaven... Until we get to heaven, we won't know for sure who's really on our team and who's just posing. 
Now, there are ways to tell. This does not mean like there's a spy in the church, but we won't know for sure. All we know about the church is relatively broad and somewhat conflicting. The Bible tells us that there is neither Jew nor Greek and that the church is inclusive, inclusive. But the Bible also tells us that those who do not believe in Christ are not part of the church as his bride, and therefore the church is both inclusive and exclusive. There's a brand new social media app like Facebook and Instagram called Beam. What sets Beam apart is that it is invite only. You have to know somebody. Otherwise, you can't beam. The church, on the other hand, is not an invite-only, password-protected, beam-type community. The church is not a skull-and-crossbones, Illuminati, Freemason-type secret society. The church is not a hipster subculture where only the cool and knowledgeable can come. How many hipsters does it take to change a light bulb? Oh, you don't know? The church is not that. It is an inclusive, inviting, open, come just as you are, just come community. But despite being a multinational, multiracial community with a long history, the bride is also exclusive. Some people, despite what they may say, simply aren't a part of the bride of Christ. There are many outside of the church who will never become a part of the church. But we need to remember, it's not up to us to decide who's in and who's out. That's Jesus' job, and he's got everything taken care of. Our job is to love those who claim to be in the church like they're in the church. And to love those who aren't in the church like we want them in the church. Jesus has only one bride. And that's his church. And he is a loyal husband. But he's also a particular husband. When considering Jesus' loyalty to his wife, it's helpful to remember what the Bible and uh, a basic knowledge of world history has shown us about her. While Jesus is presented as the perfect husband, the church is not presented as the perfect bride. The Bible uses some rather colorful language about the church, especially in regard to her infidelities. Suffice it to say, Jesus' bride is something of a floozy. She has a tendency to love things other than her husband. Anything, really. Other gods, politics, money, health, attendance, education, programs, being right. All of these things, no matter how good some of them may actually be, have a tendency of diverting our love away from our true and faithful husband. And this makes his loyalty even more incredible. 
He isn't loyal to his bride because she's loyal to him. He's loyal to her in spite of the fact that she can't be loyal to him. The church, like everything in this fallen world, is broken. Filled with broken people. The church, with all the politics and social hierarchies, is messy. The church, with all of its divorces and fragmentations, with all of its cultural and theological wars, is off-putting to many outsiders and many insiders. The church today and throughout history has a knack for making secondary issues into primary ones, all the while forgetting that the primary purpose of church is to preach the love and grace that only comes through Jesus Christ. Yet in spite of all her many imperfections, Jesus still loves the church. And he still uses the church. However, Jesus doesn't just simply stand back and let his church run amok. Jesus is a particular husband. And he wants his wife to be a certain way. But because she's incapable of being who he wants her to be, because she can't get right, he's changing her. One day, he promises she will be the perfect bride. Let's look at this Isaiah passage. Verse 2. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your, and your land shall be married. This passage looks into the future, to the day when all that is sad will come untrue. Something has changed. Where there is an overwhelming lack of righteousness, there will be an overwhelming abundance of it. The bride will be called by a new name. No more will she be forsaken, forgotten, abandoned. No more will she be desolate, barren, ruined, trash. She will be called, my delight is in her. Because Christ delights in who his bride will become because he's transforming her. Let's look at our Ephesians passage. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This passage gives us a glimpse of how this transformation is actually taking place. Christ will sanctify which means make holy. He will holify his bride. He is performing divine surgery, removing from the church all that stains her and filling those places with grace so that one day she will stand in splendor without spot or wrinkle and she will be holy and without blemish. And how does he do this? 
by cleansing her by the washing of water with the word. What this means is that through the preaching of the word, he is bathing her. He is removing the dirt and sweat and blood from all her running around with lovers less faithful. His loyalty is profound because he takes her in his arms and cleans her and cares for her and lavishes her and dolls her up despite all that she's done. And he does this through the preaching of the word that says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Fear not, for I am with you. I know the plans I have in store for you. Whoever believes in me will not perish, but have eternal life. He's saying, you are my bride, and I am loyal to you. But how can we be sure? I mean, how do we know that he really means it? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He loved the church to death, literally. He gave himself, he gave himself up for her that he might transform her, that he might make her holy, that he might call her by a new name because she has a new identity. The story is a familiar one. It seems like once a generation, somebody comes along and blows the dust off of it and turns it into a movie. Because we've got Pygmalion, My Fair Lady, Trading Places, Pretty Woman, She's All That, Not Another Teen Movie, Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen, and most recently, The Duff. In all of these, someone attempts to transform an unlikely, unqualified, unattractive character into something wonderful. And except for trading places, though that would have been an interesting plot twist. Except for trading places, the one who's transforming this person falls in love with them. Eliza Doolittle steals Henry Higgins' heart. Richard Gere climbs the fire escape to rescue Julia Roberts. Rachel Lee Cook takes off her glasses and changes clothes and all of a sudden Freddie Prinze Jr. is in love with her. But all of these fall short for two reasons. First, Jesus doesn't just change the outward appearance of the church, but transforms her whole being. And second, he didn't fall in love with the church because she was beautiful. He is making her beautiful because he has always loved her. He didn't see the potential in his bride. Jesus saw the actual, as in what he is actually going to do. From before all creation, he loved his bride and knew in spite of her sin and brokenness that he would redeem her, transform her, sanctify her, rename her that she would stand on that final day in glory, no longer called forsaken, but called my delight is in her. 
So we can clearly see the extent of Christ's loyalty to his bride. He is loyal even unto death. And we see that that loyalty manifests itself in a desire to transform his bride. Because he's particular. Not just any bride will do. He must have a perfect bride. So he goes to amazing lengths to make his bride perfect. Therefore, we see finally that Jesus is a proud husband. And this pride manifests itself in two ways. Jesus shows his bride off for all to see, and he presents her to himself. Look at our Isaiah passage. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Jesus' pride in his bride is shown clearly by verse 2, where the nations and and their kings are made spectators of the transformed church in all of her glory and righteousness. On that last day, all those who wanted nothing to do with the church, all those who put their trust in horses and chariots and power and money and individuality, will be astounded by her transformed glory. She will be a crown of beauty, a royal diadem in the hand of the Lord, shown off with pride. However, this doesn't mean that we as the church should just sit back and wait for that day. And let our duties and reputation go to pot. We are still called to be the light of the world shining in the darkness of this world. We are still called to be the salt of the earth spreading out and entering into this world to enhance its savor. We are still called to make the world a better place or die trying. Even though only Jesus can ultimately purge the earth of all that is broken and evil. The church may be hated and mocked and ignored by the world at large, but that doesn't mean that we should just keep our gospel to ourselves. If the gospel can transform the wayward and broken church into something that Jesus is proud of, then the gospel can transform this world, or at least the lives of the people who live in it. The world may look at Jesus' love for the church and say, Her? But one day they will look at the church and be jealous because of how much Jesus loves her. But Jesus' pride for his church isn't just in showing her off like she's some kind of trophy wife. Look at Ephesians 5.27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is a proud husband because he is proud of who his bride has become. 
proud of who he has made her. She's presented to him like in some kind of royal wedding. But even in a normal wedding, we all know that when the bride comes in, the groom, hopefully, isn't staring off in space. He's staring at his bride in all her splendor and beauty and joy. And his delight is in her. Through the sanctifying and cleansing of the church, Jesus has made her presentable in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He has made her holy and without blemish. In other words, he has made her like himself. The perfect husband has taken an imperfect wife and with love, patience, and the fact that he's God has made her perfect too. And so when she's presented to him, he can look upon her for the first time as the perfect bride for the perfect husband. And he can delight. Not only is her new name, her new identity, my delight is in her. Isaiah 62.5 tells us that just as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jesus is proud of his bride because he will make her perfect. He's so proud of her that he was willing to come to her to dwell among her, to live the perfect and sinless life that she could never live. He was willing to die for her, taking all of her sins upon him as he hung from the cross. He was willing to lie dead for three days before defeating death and bringing about a new kind of life for them to live. And he was willing to return to heaven to speak on her behalf, interceding for her, reminding Satan that his days are numbered and that the church belongs to Christ. And he's willing to wait for her, to cherish her and treasure her, to nourish her and sustain her, to care for her every need. And he's willing to return to her one day, and make all things new, and live with her on a new earth, and he's willing to return, I'm sorry, and where and there will be no tears, and no death, and no sin, and they'll be happily ever after, they'll live happily ever after. If you believe this, then you're already a part of his bride. So take the next step and join with your fellow believers in a community that honors and falls to the feet of their loyal, particular, and proud husband. And if for some reason you still don't believe this, ask yourself, are you too unlovable for Jesus? Because if he loves the church, after all she's done, loving you and forgiving you, will be a cakewalk. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. 
that tells us of your son and his grace and that through its, through its being read and preached in, in the church for 2,000 years, you have cleaned your church and washed her and showed her that her husband is ever faithful even when she is not. Father, we thank you for Jesus who's the only one that binds all of us together. It's in his name we pray. Amen.